Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's talk about this new study. For some of you guys that are new to our Wednesday night study, we go a little bit deeper on Wednesday nights than what we do on Sunday mornings. So we have an hour and a half. So we're going from 6.30 to 8. We dive a little deeper. We've done everything from the old survey of the Old Testament to survey of the New Testament. We finished up last time going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so this, this study really comes from a conversation that, that Lori, I'm going to give Lori credit, a little bit of credit for this, because what was it, about four years ago, we're sitting in a home Bible study. I think we were doing the radical study with David Platt. And we were talking about the Great Commission, and it talked about obeying everything that Jesus commanded. And, and we just kind of stopped and thought, well, that's interesting. Let's do a study on that. And so Lori said, it'd be nice to do a study one of these days on everything that Jesus commanded. So I've been thinking about that for a few years now, and we're finally getting to that. So that's kind of why we're doing this. So here's the, here's the thing. Hopefully my clicker works. Yes, it does. This is our mission statement as a church. We exist to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and disciple for God's great commission. And so the big question that we ask as we start out is how do we display God's glory? How do you actually display God's glory? Well, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We see this most emphasized in what Jesus calls the great commandment. So let's look at Matthew 26. We're going to start there. We're going to be kind of all over the place, but mainly in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 26, starting... Am I in the right place? Wait just a minute. I think I'm in the wrong place. Somebody help me. I think I wrote that down wrong. Where's the great commandment passage? It's not Matthew 20. No, that's the great commission. The great commandment. I think I wrote it down wrong. It's earlier. Anyway, somebody that's good at Bible drill, I wrote the, I wrote the, the wrong verse down. Oh, here it is. It's Matthew 22, 34. Uh, Matthew 22, 32. Actually, th- Anyway, here it is. Verse, I don't know where that passage of Scripture came from. I don't know what. It's Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. I must have been dyslexic. It's 22, 36, okay? I've got a whiteboard, so I'll write down here. Matthew, what did I say? 36 and following. Okay, so let's read that together. Sorry, guys. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is the great commandment? It is to what? Love. So we could say it's to love. And if you guys can't see over there, I'll try to move over here. It's to love Jesus with everything that we are. 
That, that's what he commands us to do, to love him with everything we are, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. So that's on the top of how we glorify God. We love Jesus. We love him with everything we are. So that leads to question. <clears throat> what does it look like to actually love Jesus? I'm glad you asked. John 14, and I know it's in John 14. Let's go to John 14. I'll, I'll, I'll promise this is the right, the right address. John 14, 15. John 14, 15. This is what Jesus says. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So how do we show Jesus that we love him? We keep those commandments, or we can just, can we just use the word obey? We obey. We keep his commandments, okay? So the way that we love Jesus is we obey Jesus. Okay, look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to, to him. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So there again, the way we love Jesus is we keep his commandments. Okay, look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Three times, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandment, you will keep my word, you will obey. That's how you, that's how you show Jesus that you love him, is by keeping his commandments. Now, let's go to 1 John, not the gospel of John, but let's go to 1 John, and let's just hear it one more time. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And here's verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what does John say again? This is how we love Jesus. We keep his commandments. So three times in the Gospel of John, one time in 1 John, we love Jesus by keeping his commandments. Everybody got that? That's, that's pretty easy. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew. Let's go back to the Great Commission. Okay, so the great com what's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You're to love Jesus with everything. How do you show that you love Jesus? You keep his commandments. Okay, then what are we supposed to be doing in the Great Commission? Let's see if you guys have the Great Commission memorized. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is the, the, the final words that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew to us as his followers and what we are to be doing. So Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, what are we supposed to be doing in the Great Commission? We are to be making disciples. And then what does that look like? You make a disciple by baptizing them, but what do we also do? We are to teach them to what? Just teach them? Read the text carefully. What does it say? Teach them to obey or observe all that Jesus did what? 
commanded. So do you guys see a pattern here? If we show Jesus that we love him by keeping his commandments, and if we are to do the Great Commission and go make disciples and teach everyone, new believers, old believers, to obey Jesus' commandments, then that is a huge question. So here's the question. How in the world can we love Jesus and how in the world can we make disciples if we don't actually know all that Jesus commanded? So what do you say? You love me by what? Obeying my commandments. We are to go teach new disciples, new believers, old believers, any believer to make disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. So that begs a question. How do we do that? We have to know what? All that Jesus commanded. Okay, so what's the goal? The goal over, over the next few, leading up to Christmas, it's hard to think about Christmas this far away, but here's the goal over the next few months, is to explore from the Gospels. We're mainly going to be in the Gospels because we're going to look at Jesus' earthly ministry. What actually did Jesus command? Sermon. We're going to look at parables, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very important sermon. We're going to look at parables, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very important sermon. We're going to look at parables, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Sometimes parables are hard to understand. What did Jesus command in the parables? We're going to be looking in Matthew 18 and 19 about forgiveness. How do you forgive? How do you confront somebody? How do you deal with uh, disagreements? We're going to look in Matthew 19 at the rich young ruler. What does Jesus command about evangelism, about repentance? We're going to look at the good Samaritan. What did Jesus command about that? The rich man and Lazarus, what did Jesus command about that? Foot washing in John chapter 13, what does it mean to love each other? And then we're going to do a lot on the Holy Spirit and what it means to bear fruit. So what we're going to do is we're going to look thematically. We're not going to look at every verse in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look thematically at Jesus' earthly ministry, his earthly ministry, and find out from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John exactly what did Jesus command. Fair enough? Because what's the goal in life? The ultimate, the greatest commandment is what? Love Jesus. How do we love Jesus? Obey his commands. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be making disciples and teaching other people to obey his commands. So it's important that we know what? His commands. Okay? So, our primary aim is to find out what Jesus commanded and then to obey him as a way to show him that we love him. Okay? So, before we start, I want to talk about three dangerous ditches that you can go off onto as we start this whole study. Because let me just, um, there's a little bit of audience participation in, in this tonight. When we talk about the term obey, does that conjure up some fear? <laughs> got to obey his commands. So kind of, ooh, I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable about obedience and his commands. And, and sometimes we can feel like, well, are you talking, what are you talking about, Sean? This whole issue of, oh, I thought you were supposed to love Jesus. Well, let's talk about three ditches, three dangerous ditches. Here's the first one, and, and I'm going to have to explain this one because this may not be a ditch you guys are familiar with, but it's a ditch that's becoming more popular. And my job as pastor is to teach you guys popular ditches. Does that make sense? Weird things that are happening in the evangelical world. So here's the first one. This is what we call a canon within a canon and I'll explain that, or it's probably more popularly known as red-letter Christianity. Okay? 
Do any of you guys have Bibles with red letters? Okay. Is there anything wrong with red letter Bibles? No, there's nothing wrong. It helps you know what the words are of Jesus. So what is red letter Christianity? What is a canon within a canon? Here's what they say. There, uh, this may- so let me give you an example. Okay, you're like, what? Who, who believes that? So let me give you an example okay you're like what who, who believes that let's talk about the issue of like gay marriage or the issue of homosexual behavior the red letter christians or some people would say jesus never mentioned homosexuality in the gospels it's not in red letters but paul mentioned it did not paul mention it does not leviticus mention it so the old testament mentions it paul mentions it but jesus didn't so because jesus didn't mention it because the red letters are more important, we're going to go with what Jesus said as opposed to what Paul said. And since Jesus didn't address it, it's okay now. You understand what I'm saying? They're saying that when you look at the entire Bible, the thing that's the most important are the red letters. The rest of the Bible secondary. Okay. Have you guys ever heard this before? Is this new to you? Okay, let me give you a direct, direct, it's like almost what, a direct quote Marriage is what brings us together today. Sorry, <laughs> for those of you that like Princess Bride. Here's a quote from the Red Letter Christian website. Here's what, I got this off their website. And, and, and at first, this sounds good. The goal of Red Letter Christians is simple. To take Jesus seriously by endeavoring to live out his radical, countercultural teachings as set forth in Scripture, and especially embracing the lifestyles prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount. Does that sound necessarily bad? Basically, they're saying we want to live radically what Jesus taught, and we want to seriously try to live out what Jesus taught in the Bible. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But if you keep reading what they talk about, here's what you find out. Gandhi once said that everybody in the world knows that what Jesus Today, lots of red-letter verses, except Christians. Today, lots of people share that same kind of disappointment with the American church. We want to change that. Applying the teachings of Jesus to our lives in such complicated times is difficult, but that is what red-letter Christians is all about. Okay, now does that sound admirable? At first glance, you're like, that's pretty admirable. We want to live according to the teachings of Jesus. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Okay, I hope you're saying no. But here's what they do. What they're saying, and it's very subtle, is that Jesus really speaks the word of God and the red letters are above the rest of what God has written in Scripture. Is that a problem? Okay. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of history about our denomination. and Some of you probably don't care about this, but I think it's important. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, in our seminaries, they got to be really liberal to where you were having professors denying the deity of Christ. They were denying that Jesus was the only way. Um, at one of our, the seminary that I attend, there was a female professor that was doing lesbian marriages in the basement without anybody knowing. And, and there was just a lot of crazy stuff going on. Okay. And what they were saying was, 
the word of God, the written word of God, is not the inerrant, inspired word of God. What Jesus spoke is the word of God. So whatever's in red letters is the word of God. Whatever's not in red letters is secondary, and we can kind of, that's negotiable. Okay? Does anybody have a problem with that? Okay, major problem with that. So what happened was, the cons- what was called the conservative resurgence, Adrian Rogers, 1979, was elected president of the SBC. Those were more liberal on denomination in the 70s and 80s. He said the Bible contains the word of God, but really the word of God is what Jesus says. The rest of the written word of God in Scripture is not really God's breathed out inerrant word, but it points to what God said in Jesus. This is called a canon within a canon. Okay, it, has anybody ever heard the, heard the term canon? Like, the Bible is a closed canon, meaning that from Genesis to Revelation, that's the fin- this is the final product of what God wanted in his Bible. Okay, it's a closed canon. Canon just means rule of faith or, or, or standard. Okay, so we don't add any scripture. Okay. All scripture. Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, let's just talk about that. Does 2 Timothy 3.16 say only the words of Jesus in red are inspired? What does he say? First of all, all. What does all mean? Genesis to Revelation. Scripture. Now, let's ask the word. What is, what is Scripture? It's probably an easy question, but it's an important question. What is Scripture? All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. What is Scripture? It's God's Word, but what is Scripture? Is it just what? It's what? The written Word. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for scripture is graphe, where we get our word writing, you know, like graphite pencils, graphe, um, the, the Greek word graphe. So when the Bible speaks about itself, it's not just saying that these words out here that somebody spoke is God's word. Yes, that's God's word, but it's been, the word we use, it's been inscripturated or it's been written down in a written format so that what we have written is God's word. All of it. So Red Letter Christianity says, we want to be really radical, and we just want to obey what Jesus taught in the Red Letters, which sounds good at first. But they take it a step further and say, that's all we're going to take in the Scripture. And if we find something that doesn't quite jive with what we believe, that maybe Paul or Peter or James or Moses or Jeremiah writes, we're we're not going to obey that. Okay? So, when we talk about a closed canon, we mean the Bible is completely inspired and authoritative from Genesis to Revelation. There's not one part that's more inspired than another. All of it's equally inspired. So, you're like, why is he bringing this up? Here's why we're bringing this up. We're specifically looking at the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What Jesus commanded. Are there things Jesus commanded that are in Paul's writings? Yes. Are there things that Jesus commanded in James and Peter and other, and other writings? Yes, obviously. We're not saying that we're not, we just don't have time to get to those. What we are looking at specifically is this. When we st- start this study and look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, what we are not doing is saying that these teachings are more important or more inspired than what we find in the rest of the Bible. What we're simply doing is saying during his earthly ministry, while he was on earth teaching before he died on the cross and even after he died on the cross, while he was still on earth, what did Jesus command? Because those are the times he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We're to obey the Great Commission by teaching people to obey all that he's commanded. Now, when we say all that he's commanded, I mean, we could say, okay, we're going to study the whole Bible. I mean, if we wanted to, we could say everything Jesus commanded, we're going to study from Genesis to Revelation in the next six weeks, and we're going to, but I'm trying to narrow this down to what did Jesus command while he was on earth And we find that in the four Gospels, but we're not saying that that's somehow more important than the rest of the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? So that's ditch number one. We don't want to just say, all we're going to obey and all we're going to care about is what Jesus said in red letters and the rest of the Bible we can throw out because you can get to some dangerous ditches. Okay, does that make sense? All right, here's, here's dangerous ditch number two. The second dangerous ditch is what we call license. It says, you know what? Obedience to Jesus is optional. All we really need to do is just love him and live how we want. Yeah, we can just love Jesus. We don't have to worry about obedience. Anybody have a problem with that? Okay, I'm going to talk about a movement that's going on within our own camp. There's a movement within our own camp to reform Christianity that downplays the commands of Scripture. Okay? There is, okay... Let me talk about this, because you guys probably don't read as much as I do. Is there anything wrong with being gospel-centered? No, we talk about it all the time around this church, don't we? Being gospel-centered means that we rest, we trust in the finished work of Christ. We believe that there's no way you can earn your salvation. You can't do anything to to get your salvation by by working hard. It's a free gift of grace. We live in the freedom of, of who we are in Christ. But, let me ask you another question. Are there commands in Scripture to be obeyed? Are there commands in Scripture? There's a movement right now that says, you know what? Let's not focus so much on the commands in Scripture because all it's going to do is it's going to lead just going to it's just going to lead to legalism, and it's going to take you away from the gospel. It's going to take you away from who you are in Christ, and all you really need to do is just rest in who you are in Christ. And if you fail at obedience, just go back to resting in who you are in Christ. Sounds good halfway, right? Are we to rest in who we are in Christ? But does that give us an excuse not to obey? So there's a movement afoot right now that basically says, we, we really can't obey Jesus, so don't even try, okay? And when you fail and continue to sin, just rest in his finished work and accept his forgiveness of you. So don't worry about the commands in Scripture. You can't even do them. And when you fail and sin, don't even worry about that. Just rest in the fact that you're forgiven. Now, half of that is true. We can rest in our justification, which means that we have been declared not guilty on account of Christ. 
we're secure in our position. We're forever being accepted by God. We, we rest in the fact that he saved us by grace and we can't lose our salvation. But that does not mean that we are never commanded to pursue holiness or strive for righteousness so that we should just sit back in defeat and just keep sinning over and over again. You see how that's a ditch? You really can't, it's not really worth it to try to obey Jesus because you just can't. And that's okay. Just rest in the fact that you're forgiven. Does that sa- that's a ditch, right? Okay? Half of that's true, right? Can you really obey Jesus in your own power? No. Is there grace when you fail? Yes. But does that mean that you just shouldn't try to pursue holiness or try to obey? No. So that's ditch number two. The third ditch, we call this moralism or legalism. Okay? This is where we obey him in order for him to love us more and we think we can earn God's favor by obedience. Okay? So this is almost the opposite of the other one. God loves me more if I obey him more. God loves me less if I obey him less. Is that true? God loves you constantly based upon Christ, but there's this whole idea that the only reason, the only reason I'm going to obey Jesus, the only reason I'm going to obey his commands is because I'm doing it out of fear that somehow I'm going to either lose my salvation or fear that if I don't live up to God's standards, he's going to stop loving me. That's moralism. Okay? And there are those who are more on the side of license, say we should never preach or teach on obedience because it leads to moralism and legalism. They say that any effort in the Christian life that we put forth to pursue holiness will take away the role of the Holy Spirit, and we should just let go and let God. So there's all these ditches, okay? So ditch number one, when we talk about I'm I'm laying the foundation here on obedience because I want to make sure we have a proper view of what it truly means to obey Jesus. Okay, so ditch number one. Ditch number one is only the red letters are what we obey. Everything else in the Bible is is just optional. What we really want to do is radically obey the red letters. Okay? We can cross that off as a ditch. Number two is what we call license, or um, some people call it free grace, where, you know what, we really can't obey Jesus. Don't even try to obey him. Just rest in the fact that you're going to fail and just keep... Just, just, just rest in the fact that he's forgiving you. It, th- this statement would be this. I love sinning. Jesus loves forgiving. That's a great relationship. Th- that's the mantra of this. Can we cross that off as a ditch? Okay. The third one says, we call this one moralism or legalism, and this is the ditch that says, the only reason I obey Jesus is so that he will love me more. And I'm afraid that if I don't live up to his standard, he's going to stop loving me. So it's more to earn brownie points with God. So your obedience is motivated by brownie points as opposed to joy and love, okay? So those are three ditches. Now, one of the most profound books that I ever read early in my Christian walk, I think I read it when I was first in college, I read it again when I was a young adult, I read it again when I was a youth pastor, and then when, I, when, when we first had our first men's study here at the church back in 2005 or whatever, our Tuesday morning men's study, I took our men through this book because it's been so 
profoundly impacting on me. It's called Jerry, it's by Jerry Bridges. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. Let me give you a quote that really radical, revolutionized my entire way of thinking. Just kind of how I grew up. It revolutionized the way I think. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. That is not to say that God doesn't want us to experience victory, but rather to emphasize that victory is the byproduct of obedience. Now let me unpack that. I grew up my whole life, early in my childhood and as a youth, you've got to have victory over this. You've got to have victory over this. You've got to walk in victory. And if you're, if you're not walking in victory, then there's something wrong with you. Has anybody ever grown up listening to, like, you've got to have victory over stuff? Okay. There's nothing wrong with wanting victory over sin. But what it was an excuse was, was to sit back and do nothing and just kind of wait for God to zap you with victory. The only way you're going to get victory is through what? Obedience. So the focus is more on obedience. The byproduct of obedience is you experience victory. So what we really want to focus on is, okay, what exactly is obedience? Because if we want to love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. That's what the whole goal of this class is. Now, I'm debating whether I'm going to do the second part because this is a lot of stuff from the Gospel Reformation Network, and I'm going to skip it for now just because I think that it may be a little bit too overkill. So you can have that for your notes. It's just an organization, the Gospel Reformation Network. They, they have a pretty good balance of grace and obedience and how it all works together, so I'm going to skip all that. You can have it in your notes. And um, let's get to... The question here after Article 12. Okay, so let me just flip through all these. Where it says there, should we rest in the finished work of Christ? Do you guys see that? Should we, do you guys see that? Should we rest in the finished work of Christ and be thankful for our justification? Is it page 11 on your thing? Okay. Let me get past all these slides because I think this is going to be... Oh, here we go. Should we rest in the finished work of Christ and be thankful for our justification? The answer is absolutely. What does the finished work of Christ mean? It means that we don't have to do anything in and of ourselves to earn salvation. Christ has finished the work for us. When he died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. We rest in that. We rest in the fact that we're forgiven. We rest in the fact that we can't lose our salvation. We rest in the fact that we are secure. We rest in that. Should we, at the same time, pursue holiness and strive for obedience to Christ by following his commands? Yes. So the question is, where's the balance? So what would happen if I just said to you, all right, we're done tonight. Just go out and obey. Do it. Try to figure out how to obey. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just go out there and try your hardest to obey. Is that going to give you much encouragement? What are you going to be walking out there being like? Thanks, Pastor Sean. I can't do that. So what I want to talk about, first and foremost, is this whole issue of regeneration. We've got to start with regeneration as the starting point because if we're going to keep this in balance, this is where we have to start. So let's turn to John chapter 3. 
I will make this statement. You cannot obey Jesus unless you have been regenerated. Let me say it another way. You cannot obey Jesus unless you're born again. Let me say it another way. You cannot obey Jesus unless you are saved. Can a lost person obey Jesus? Maybe bits and pieces here and there. But there's something that happens to a Christian when you become a Christian that God gives you that enables you to obey. And that comes in regeneration. So let's look at John chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Your translation may say born from above. So what does Jesus say there? You must be what? Born again to be able to even see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is freaking out like, what are you saying, Jesus? Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Does not compute, Jesus. I mean, I was born once. I'm six foot two. Not climbing back up in there and trying to be born a second time. It's anatomically, physiologically impossible, Jesus. What are you talking about? And obviously, Jesus is not talking about a physical birth. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So being born again means that the Holy Spirit has done something to you to give you new life. You've been born spiritually anew. And once you've been born again, Jesus says you can now see the kingdom of heaven, you can enter the kingdom of heaven, you've had this spiritual rebirth. Okay? And I've often said regeneration comes from two words. Re-generate. Re means what? Again, generate means what? To start up to re or even genesis to 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 have a rebirth to 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 have a this renewal and so that's what happens when you become a christian now let's go to ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 paul is going to give it a, a a contrast between what a lost person is and what a person who's been born again is a person that's been regenerated And in verses 1 through 3, he's going to list for us all the things that describe a lost person who's not regenerated, a person who's not been born again, a person who's still a sinner. And then he's going to make this glorious transition to talk about what happens, okay? So Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you, who's you? Us. Were, meaning what? This was something that was in our past you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked okay so we were spiritually dead we are cadavers the walking dead we're spiritual zombies we we weren't just spiritually sick we were dead okay following the course of this world so we thought we were dead we followed the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. So we were spiritually dead. We followed the world. We followed Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were enslaved to our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were under God's wrath like everybody. Beautiful picture, right? Spiritually dead, under God's wrath, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to our flesh, enslaved to the world. All of that describes who we once were as lost people. An, un- an unregenerate, a non-born-again person, that's what, that's what you are. But, how does verse 4 start? But, but God. What has God done to overcome that condition? God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Why did God do that? Because of his rich mercy, his great love, his amazing grace. He's done what? He made us alive. So when you are regenerated, you are born again. You are made alive because before you were spiritually dead. And who does all this? Do you do this? Do you cause yourself to be born again? Do you make yourself alive? No, you're dead. God makes you alive. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to, whoops, let's go to Titus. So if you are a Christian, you're born again. There's no such thing as a not born again Christian. Every Christian has been born again. You've been made alive. You've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. God has caused you to be born again. God has done this work of grace in you to give you a new identity, to give you a new life. Titus 2, 11 through 12. Okay, so if I'm alive and I'm regenerated and I'm born again, what do I have now? that I didn't have before. What was my life like before? Who was I enslaved to before? Satan, the world, the flesh. Okay, what does Titus 2, 11 through 12 say? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, I think the NIV says, teaching us to say no, to what? Ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We're to live what? Upright, godly lives in this present age. We're not to be enslaved to the passions of our flesh. But what gives us the ability to do that? For the, verse 11, grace of God. What does God's grace do? God's grace teaches us to say no. Okay? So, what is regeneration? It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to grant dead sinners new life in Christ with new affections, desires, and abilities. This includes the ability and desire to obey and thus pursue holiness in the process of sanctification. The renewed heart has a responsibility to obey. Let me just put two words up here. These may not be in your notes. They may be later on, but I'm thinking about them right now. So if, it's, if we repeat them later on, you're getting them now because this is when they're popping into my head. Ability, desire. 
this is a lost person, or what we'd call an unregenerate person on this side. This is a, a saved person or a regenerated, born-again person on this side. Okay. Two things that a lost, unregenerate person cannot do. Can a lost and unregenerate person, do they have the ability to obey? Why do they not have the ability? Do, do they have the ability? Yes. They're doing good. They're, 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 they're being good. They're being good for the sake of morality or for the sake of culture. They're a moral person. But do they actually have a spiritual ability to, to do? They don't have a heart. They don't have the ability, okay? Do they have the desire? They may want to obey for the reasons of, like, legalism or morality, but do they, do they have a godly desire that's there because you want to do it for Jesus? I would argue, I would, this is my argument, you can, you can maybe disagree with me, I don't think a lost person either has the ability or the desire to, to fully obey Jesus. But what happens when you get saved? What does God give you in the new birth? What does God give you when he causes you to be born again? He gives you the ability and the desire. And both of those are important, right? What happens if all you have is the desire? I really want to do this, but I can't. Well, what if you just have the ability, I can do this, but I really don't want to. So you need both of them. So in the new birth, God is going to give you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, and now the Holy Spirit living inside you gives you the supernatural ability and desire to obey. So when Jesus says, the way that you love me is to obey all my commandments, and, and when he says in 1 John, my commandments are not burdensome, the only reason they're not burdensome, they're not hard, is because now we can, we can lovingly obey Jesus because we have the ability and desire as a new Christian with a new heart. So you cannot say as a Christian here tonight, I, don't, I, don't, I can't obey Jesus. Can you say that and be truthful? And you really can't say, I don't want to obey Jesus. You may say, I don't want to obey Jesus, but to be on, being honest, you've got the ability, you've got the desire. The question is, are you going to, to trust in the Holy Spirit to, to give you that? So you have a responsibility to obey. Now, we're going to look at some passages of Scripture that combine these two. We're going to look at some tension in the Bible. Because when you start talking about obedience, here comes the big question. Here's the big question. What role... Does God play or the Holy Spirit? And what role do I play? There's a lot of confusion out there. Are those legitimate questions? If I'm supposed to obey, do I just sit back and let God kind of do it through me? Or if I do all the work, does that mean that God's not doing any of it? What, what role does God play and what role do I play? We're going to look at some scriptures that kind of give us the balance of both these. So let's look at Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So what are we commanded to do in this passage of Scripture? Put to death sin. Kill sin. The word put to death is what we call a present active indicative. It means ongoing, continual action. The you before it means that it is your responsibility to do this. So whose responsibility in this passage of Scripture, Romans 8, 13, whose responsibility is it to put to death sin? Ours. Does it stop there? Does this passage just stop right there and say, okay, go do it? What does it say? Read it carefully. Go back and read it. You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does your Bible say? Or what is, I mean, what does it say? By whom? The Holy Spirit. You have a responsibility to put to death. You have a responsibility to obey, to fight sin, to kill sin. It's your responsibility, but how do you do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit who gives you the ability and the power to do that. Is the Holy Spirit going to read the Bible for you? Is the Holy Spirit going to set your alarm clock to get up to do your quiet time? Is the Holy Spirit going to help you memorize Scripture? Yes, to an extent, but who's, who, who has some responsibility to do some things? We do. Now, the best passage of Scripture that, that combines these together is Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So let's turn there, because if we just had one verse and not both verses, you would have some really bad news on both sides. So let's look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13. If we just had verse 12, oh, are those working? Better markers. Thanks, Don. If we just had Philippians 2, 12, if that's all we had, then it would be kind of some bad news. So we've got verse 13 added there to give us some balance. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, what word do we see there? We've got the word obey, okay. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's the command there? How do we obey? We obey by working out our salvation. Does Paul say work for? We obey by working out our salvation. So that means we've got to put forth. What does the word working out mean? Got to put some effort. If you're working out, how many of you guys work out? Tell me if you work out. Don't tell me. (laughs) Some of us work out. Some of us don't. But when you go work out, what are you doing? You're putting forth energy, effort to help your body to grow. Look the way you want it, okay? So it's a positive thing you're doing to make a change. But you've got to put effort into it. So Paul here says, you've got to put some effort into this whole Christian life thing. Now, if all we had was verse 12, what would you think? I'm in trouble. I'm in huge trouble because I can't do that. Or you may think, oh, that's easy. I can do that. Both of those are wrong, right? This becomes all me, what I can do. Let's look at verse 13. So, let me just put this thing right here. If 
The verb for work out is a present imperative, which means that it's a command to give us that we are continually doing this as a lifestyle. So continually keep on working out our salvation. If this is the only verse we had, it would lead to moralism and legalism because it would be, work, it would be us working with no power from the Holy Spirit. It's kind of what we talked about. But we have verse 13, which gives us the full teaching on Scripture. What does he say? Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, for gives us the purpose clause. Why are we to work out our salvation? Because who's working in us? God is doing the work. God is working in me. And what does God do? Paul specifically defines, read it very carefully. Paul specifically defines what God does. How does he work? He works in us to do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. What's the difference between will and work? Okay, I talked about this earlier. The will in the original language means the desire, the desire to to obey. God puts within us a desire to obey. He grows in us grace through the indwelling spirit to want to obey. And what is, he gives us not just the desire, but he gives us the, the what? Ability. So here's the paradox, guys. We're called to work, but God works. And God gives you the desire and God gives you the ability to work. So at the end of the day, if any fruit comes, who did it? God, but you did it. Does that make sense? Do we need to stop and let our minds kind of wrap around this paradox? We've got to cooperate. It's, it's a cooperative effort in our spiritual growth. So here's what God does. God empowers both our willingness to obey and also gives us the actual power to obey to carry it out in active obedience, thus evidenced by the word work. We've got to get the order right. And I've talked about this a lot over the years. There are gospel indicatives and there's moral imperatives in the Bible. And I'm going to show you where those are. Okay, so if you're new, these are, these are new terminology. Let me explain what a gospel indicative is and a moral imperative because they're all over the New Testament. You've got gospel indicatives, indicatives and you've got moral imperatives. And, and the only way that I can kind of explain this to you is to just show you an example and we'll go to colossians sometimes i go to ephesians but we'll go to colossians let's go to colossians chapter three and what i want to show you is the difference between a gospel indicative and a moral imperative okay so so colossians chapter three if then you have been raised with christ Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay, Paul 
says some things there about what it means to be a Christian. What does he say? You've been raised with Christ. You've died. You have, your life is hidden. Christ is your life. The gospel or indicatives are all the things that God has done for you. So a gospel indicative would be God has saved me, God has forgiven me, God has chosen me, God has blessed me, God has gifted me, God has um, canceled my debt, all the things that God has, and as a result of that, I, this is who I am. You're not called to, a gospel indicative, you don't do anything in that. God, God does everything, okay? But then, what's a moral imperative? Something that we have to do. This is a gospel indicative is what God has done for you. A moral imperative is what you do for God. Or, in other words, it's obedience. Now, what happens if you get the order mixed up? What happens if you start here? Let's say you start here, and this, let's say the moral imperative is first and the gospel indicative is second. Let's say you start there. It doesn't work. Why does it not work? You don't have the ability to do it. You don't have the desire to do it. You don't have the identity of who you are in Christ. You don't know what God has done for you. All you're basically doing is a pastor or some teacher's telling you, just go do stuff for Jesus. And you're going to get really worn out if you don't know what God has done for you first. A lot of churches and a lot of Christians and a lot of organizations camp out right here. Have you been in a situation where all you ever hear is go do these things? Is there anything wrong with being, being told to do stuff? But if that's all you're hearing, if all you hear in your teaching and preaching and, 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 and stuff you take in like you did through the internet or radio or whatever, if all you get is moral imperatives, without the gospel indicatives, you're going to be very imbalanced in the Christian life. Because what it's going to lead to it's going to lead to two things. Pride, I can do this. Or despair, I can't do this. And both of those are going to put you in a ditch. So the gospel indicative says, wait a minute, let's back up. Let's, let's, let's start with the gospel indicative. God has saved me. God has caused me to be born again. God has given me new life. God has forgiven me. God has blessed me. God has given me the power. God has given me the ability. God has given me the desire. God has done an amazing thing. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm a new person. I am a totally new creation because God has done this. Now, because of that, I can go obey. And I know where my source of power comes from, and I know where my source of identity comes from. And I can obey with joy. I can obey with gladness because I've got the power and the ability to do it. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's see this. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, those are indicatives. There's some imperatives in there, but really Paul's saying, you've got a new life. Your, your old life's died. You're hidden with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. Therefore, let's look at 5 through 11. What's your responsibility? Put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here then is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So what are we supposed to do? We are to what? Put to death this list. What does the list look like? You guys tell me, what are some things on the list that we're supposed to put to death? Just call them out. Anger, sexual morality. What was that? Doubt. Lying. Okay. Idolatry. Okay. So, you're to put these things off. Put off, kill, put to death. There's two imageries here that Paul is using when he talks about this area of obedience. One is to kill. You've got to kill these things, put them to death. And the other one, he, he, he kind of relates it to clothing. Like, change your clothes. <laughs> Take off these old clothes and put on these new clothes. Kill this old sin and, and put on this new self because you really are a new person. And the list that he gives, what does it look like? I mean, if you were just to kind of break down that list, it almost looks like the Ten Commandments. Now, Sabbath and obedience to parents is missing, but you can look at all the other eight. So let's ask a question that you're probably asking. Are we as Christians now still bound to obey the Ten Commandments? Obedience. If you love Jesus, you will obey his commandments. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, that's old, old, Ten Commandments is Old Testament. We're under a new dispensation now. We're in the New Testament. We as Christians are under grace, not under law, so we don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. Okay. A question is not whether or not the Ten Commandments is applicable to Christians. The question is, how do we relate to the Ten Commandments? Do we obey the Ten Commandments in order to get saved? but do we follow the Ten Commandments as a way to obey once we are saved? Okay. So Jesus, obedience to the law is, no, is not abrogated or no longer necessary just because we're Christians. Now I'm going to give you a quote from Brian Chappell in his book, Holiness by Grace. It's a pretty good book. He says, Now that Christ has paid the penalty, however, the law is a map of blessing showing how those God has made right with himself can further experience his love, bring honor to the one they love, and share his love with others. Understanding that the law no longer condemns but guides us to spiritual safety, worship and fellowship makes it a standard, a delight, and indicates why antinomianism shackles God's people to unhappiness. I'll explain that last thing. What does he call the law there? He calls it a map of blessing a map of blessing he calls it a guide to spiritual safety and what else did he say a joy or a delight what did he say what was the other thing um, a standard of delight So when we think about the law, when we think about the Ten Commandments, when we think about those commandments in the Bible that we are to obey, as a Christian, not to get your salvation, but once you are a Christian, once you have been saved, the Ten Commandments, it's a map of blessing. Let's just ask it the opposite way. If you break all the Ten Commandments, are you going to have a pretty good life? 
if you keep the Ten Commandments, are you going to be blessed? Not automatically guaranteed, but you're probably more likelihood. Is it the Ten Commandments a guide to spiritual safety? Is it a standard of delight? What we're saying now is that once you become a Christian, your relationship to the law of God, it no longer, it's not to save you, but it now becomes a guide for living because you want to please God. You want to obey His commandments. So we don't just nullify the law. But notice how what Paul nuances. Let's go back to Colossians for a moment. What, what does Paul, Paul says, what, what's he say is happening to your new self? Go back and look at verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being what? Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says it's being renewed. This is a present participle, which means that you're not the one doing the renewing. It's what's called a divine passive, where God is the one doing the acting, and it's in the present tense, which means that God is continually working in you to continually to renew you to be more like Jesus. So, who's doing the work of renewing? Are you renewing yourself? Who's doing the work of putting to death these deeds of the body? You are. How can you put to death the deeds of the body? Because God is renewing you to be able to do that. He's putting within you the ability and the desire to obey and to follow Him. Okay? I just want to make sure we get this in balance. So we're still commanded to put to death sin. Okay, so we've seen the Philippians passage. What did the Philippians passage say? Work out your salvation, but... It's not really you working, it's God working in you, and he's given you the ability and desire to work, so at the end of the day, if there's anything done, God does it, but you still do it. Romans said, put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians says, you need to put these things to death, but you're being renewed by the Holy Spirit. So you got this balance. Well, who's doing the work? You are, but who's doing the work? The Holy Spirit is. Now let's look at Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What does the word strive sound like? Strive. Okay, so what words have we looked at? We, we saw the word work, work out, put to death, strive. Do those sound like passive words to you? What do they sound like? Pretty active, pretty hard work, right? So, can, can we say in some sense, we as Christians need to put some, I'll, I'll use this term, we need to put forth, I'm going to use this term, disciplined effort. Would you guys agree with that? Now, I'm going to modify this by another word. Let's put two words in front of disciplined effort, okay? And then we'll give a definition. How about we put Are we as Christians supposed to live grace-empowered disciplined effort? What does that mean? We are to put forth disciplined effort, but how does it come? It comes empowered through God's grace. So I want you to think about when you are to obey the commands of Jesus, you are to put forth discipline effort to do that. 
but the effort comes by the empowerment of God's grace. If you take either one of these away, what ditch do you fall into? If all it is is God's grace and empowerment, then I'm just what? Just a kind of a passive, I'm just, you know, not doing anything. If all we have is discipline effort without the grace, then it becomes what? I'm doing everything. So we've got to keep this in balance. And guys, this is a hard part about the Christian life. And I don't want you to get so caught up in, here's how you can get caught up. You can walk around in fear wondering, is it me? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it me? Is it the Holy Spirit? Have I done too much? Am I not letting him do enough? And you can walk around in fear wondering, just chill out. And here's what I'd say you need to do. Obey what the Bible says. And you'll find that if you keep trusting in the Holy Spirit, he's going to give you the grace and the power to do it. And when you fail, ask for forgiveness and keep asking for his power. But don't, don't so focus on who does the... Um, who does the work that you, because I think you can focus so much on who does the work that you fail to actually, what, obey. So obey what you read, pray and ask for help, and it's a process. And, and here's the thing, guys. Um, how many of you sometimes feel like you're not making any progress in the Christian life? Man, I, you're like, man, I look at my life this year and last year, and I'm, I'm not any better. I'm flatlined. I haven't made any growth. I'm ashamed. Can I just encourage you that even when you aren't thinking that you're making progress, the Holy Spirit's still working in you. And he's renewing you. And you may not see the progress the way you want to see it, but you're making progress because the Holy Spirit's working in you. And you may not have the picture that the Holy Spirit has of you because we're kind of tunnel vision. So don't be discouraged to think that, man, I'm not seeing any growth. The Holy Spirit works behind the scenes powerfully to, to grow you and, and trust in his work in your life. Now, that's not a free pass to say I don't have to do anything. You still have to put forth the effort, but, but we've got to keep that in balance. And, and I don't know exactly how you do that, so we're all on this journey together. But you're supposed to know that, Sean, because you're the pastor. Well, I'm on this process, too. Um, let's see here. Let's, just, let's, let's move through... Are we done at 8? We have like 15 minutes? 20 minutes? Wow, time flies when you're going deep in theology. Um, let's go to first Pe- Let's go to 2 Peter 1, 3-7. So we've got some words here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2. Put to death, Romans 8, Colossians 3. Strive for holiness, Hebrews. Now let's look at one last place. Let's look at 2 Peter one, three through seven, and let's just see what Peter has to say. So we've looked at Paul, we've looked at the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews, James, first Peter, second Peter, chapter one. Now, this is the perfect, um, this, I think, is the perfect balance because I, I want you to see again that, I want you to see God's role and your role, okay? It's, it, every scripture we've looked at, put to death, how? By the Holy Spirit, Work out your salvation because God works in you. Strive for holiness because God is renewing you. I mean, there's your responsibility, there's what God does. Okay, we're going to see it again here in, first, in 2 Peter 1, 3-7. So here we go, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. So what does Peter say here? God has given to us some things that we need for life and godliness. What does he say there? 
God's power, okay, so God's power has given to us everything we need for life and for godliness, which encompasses the entire Christian life. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Okay? He talks there about the divine nature, meaning that we have been born again. God has done a work of grace in us to make us um, holy. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Is that a gospel indicative or is that a moral imperative, what we just read? It's a gospel indicative. Is, is, is that passage of Scripture telling us to do anything or is it telling us what God's done? God's given us the power. God's granted us his precious promises. God's given us the divine nature. God, God, God's done all of this. Okay, but now let's look at verse 5. For this reason, make every effort. Now, what does that sound like? Everything we've been looking at, right? Make, you make every effort. For this reason, how, how can you make every effort? What, is, what does Peter say? The only way you can make every effort is because God's power has granted to you everything you need. Because God has granted to you everything you need, because God's power is available, because it's grace and power, discipline, effort, because God works in you, because it's the Holy Spirit renewing you, because God's at work, okay, now here's your responsibility, make every effort. And what does Peter say to us for us to do? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an interest into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, again, we have the responsibility to obey because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And evidence of our election and salvation is that we continue in growth. This verse addresses the assurance of salvation. How do you know that you're saved? Because you get a liver shiver and you kind of feel it? Because I got zapped at a revival conference. Because <laughs> I raised my hand when the evangelist said, every head closed and every eye, every head bowed, every eye is closed. I see that hand. I see it. I'm just kind of playing here. How do you know you're saved? Well, is there evidence that shows forth fruit? Now, we're not saved because of obedience, but we are saved to obedience. That's what Peter says there. If you are truly saved... You will be increasing in these fruits, thus proving that your calling and election is sure. So how do you have assurance of salvation? Are you growing in Christ? That's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so we're saved by grace, but we're saved to walk in good works. Here's a scary verse. Just throw this in there. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16 through 24, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by the fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now let me make this very personal. And it's kind of public because it's sometimes, I'm, I, I, do, I do posts on Facebook that relate to different theological issues and cultural issues. And I, and I made a post about something about gay marriage or, or something. And there was a person that responded to me and basically responded to other people that, that, that responded in that post that we were hypocrites and that we were not being loving and that we were being judgmental and that we should, you know, just God loves people the way they are and let them go ahead and do whatever they want because um, I'm glad God loves all people and, and, you know, just live however you want. Be, do, do whatever you want as far as sexual ethics is concerned because really God just loves everybody the way you are. Okay, that was their, their word. I responded back to them with this passage and I said, there's a lot of people that say that they love Jesus. There's a lot of people that claim that they're a Christian. There's a lot of people that say that, would say Jesus is Lord. But what does Jesus say right here? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you, meaning I never knew you in the first place. But what does he say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? Does the will of my Father. Now, I don't believe Jesus is saying you have to obey to be saved. What, I'm sa- what I think he's saying here is he's talking about fruit. If you're truly a Christian, you will want to do God's will and what he's commanded. There's the, where the proof is with the pudding. Anybody can say they love Jesus. But what does Jesus say? The way you're truly going to prove if you love me is by obeying. So at the end of the day, can you look at a person who has a totally ungodly lifestyle that's living in direct violation of the scriptures, can, can they act, can, 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 and they say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, what can you say? I don't think you, you're to say they're not saved or to question their salvation because you can't look in their heart, but what can you say? The fruit of their life is not bearing forth what it means to obey Jesus. And so that's why Jesus says here, not every, not, I mean, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Listen to what Bishop Ryle says. A great book, um, he's the Bishop of Liverpool back in the 1800s. He wrote a book called Holiness. He says this, Genuine sanctification will show itself in habitual respect to God's law and habitual effort to live in obedience to it as the rule of life. There's no greater mistake than to suppose that a Christian has nothing to do with the law and the Ten Commandments because he cannot be justified by keeping them. The same Holy Spirit who convinces the believer of sin by the law and leads him to Christ for justification will always lead him to a spiritual use of the law as a friendly guide in the pursuit of sanctification. I like his terminology there, a friendly guide. A friendly guide. Now, let's just move through here real quickly. What... We're going to skip over a few of your, of your things there. What did the Old Testament promise would happen in 
the new. What was all the Old Testament about? Obedience to the law. Obedience, obedience, obedience. And Jesus comes along and says, if you really love me, you're going to obey me. In the Great Commission, we're supposed to go out and teach people to obey all, everything he's commanded. Okay, let's talk about what happened in the Old Testament or prophesy. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them, and I will write it where? On their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where was the law in the Old Testament written? On stone tablets. Where is it written now? In our hearts, because our hearts have been changed, and the Holy Spirit's given us the ability to be able to do that. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to what? So how can we obey? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come give us a new heart. Psalm verse 40, I mean Psalm 40 verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in, within my heart. Can, who's the only one that can say, I delight to do your will? Only a regenerate person can do that. Why? Because the law is written on our heart. And then listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What did Jesus, how do we start this whole thing? Paul says here, love is the fulfilling of the law, which means what? When we love, we are being obedient to God. What did Jesus say when we started this whole thing? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So how do we, let's just do a little bit of review tonight. How, what's the greatest thing that we can do in the Christian life? It's to what? Love Jesus. Would you agree? What's the greatest mission we're called to do? The Great Commission, where we're supposed to go make disciples and teach them to obey Jesus. How did Jesus say we love him? By obeying him. The only people that can obey Jesus are those who've been saved by grace because the Holy Spirit's given us both the ability and the desire to obey. We have a responsibility to put forth effort but the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that, so it's a joint effort. So at the end of the day, we can be like this psalm, verse, chapter 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. I enjoy obeying because God's law is in my heart. Okay? And I've got the second London Baptist Confession that talks about a lot of stuff there about, it's like a formulaic way of putting this all together. You can read that later on about how the role of the law and grace and obedience and that all fits together in a pretty good Baptist confession, but I don't want to bore you with that. Uh, you can use that for your own edification. So in the last few minutes that we've got together tonight, um, well, five minutes, are there any questions or comments or observations or clarifications or things that you need, need to go over again? Next week, we're going to launch into what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount.
A lot of information, huh? Jesusology. Yeah, what they... I never heard it called Jesusology, but I've heard them accuse us of Bibleology. What they say to us is, you guys are worshiping the Bible and not worshiping Jesus. Because they'll say, Jesus is the word of God and what Jesus says is above the Bible. And you guys are, you guys are making an idol out of this written word when we really should be worshiping Jesus. And we're not making an idol out of the Bible. We're just saying that we believe that Jesus upholds the, the entire Bible as his word. So I never heard it called that, but it could be. Jesusology? Um, yes? Yeah, yeah. So, when were red letters added to American Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, yeah, anything that would be like Jesus said or he said this. There's the Jesus Seminar. I don't know if you guys have heard the Jesus Seminar. There are a bunch of guys that get together every year and they vote on what Jesus really said in the Bible. And they draw straws and have these green little colored beads. And basically, um, they, they, they vote every year and then they come up with, and it's like, like maybe like three or four verses of what Jesus actually said. The rest of it's just myth or whatever that his followers made up. Um, I just think, going back to that point, I think it's very dangerous to pit Jesus against Paul. And I can see the appeal. We really want to obey Jesus. Yes, but we've got a final, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, written word from Genesis to Revelation that's all equally inspired. So Genesis is just as equally inspired as Matthew. And Genesis, you know, has a lot of older stuff in it than Matthew did. And so there's different things, different genres and different things to understand. But, but I, I think you get real dangerous when you start saying... We're only going to follow the words of Jesus. Because basically what you've done is you've picked and choose which part of the Bible you want to obey. You stand in authority over the Bible.